Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I know we're past Black History Month now that it's March, but given the present state of prejudice and racism in the USA, we need education about the problem every month. We've got some valuable help today from Margaret L. Anderson, author of a new book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. Margaret is a professor emerita of sociology at the University of Delaware, and her work with Stanford's Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity is particularly relevant to today's conversation. At least two of her books are classroom standards, and she writes simply and powerfully about issues in drastic need of resolution. One note is that Margaret Anderson is also known as Maggie to her friends, and I hope you'll feel that comfort and trust as she joins us from Maryland. Before we get her on the line, however, I want to share a song by a friend of mine, Chester McCoy, about his experience of growing up black in East St. Louis. Then we'll talk to Margaret Anderson about getting smart about race. Here's Chester McCoy and his song, Where I Grew Up. Where I grew up We played ball every day Dreaming that we could be The next Willie Mays Where I grew up Fire hydrants kept us cool In the heat of a summer day Weren't allowed in the public pools Where I grew up Everything was black and white We colored outside the lines Fighting for civil rights Where I grew up Where I grew up Separate part of town If you knew it was good for you You got home before the sun went down Where I grew up Everybody knew your name People looked out for you No matter your claim to fame Where I grew up And I could still hear my mama's voice Reminding me that I had a choice Where I grew up Music on the radio Gave us strength for another day Gave us faith there was always hope Where I grew up We colored outside the lines But that was a different place And those were different times Where I grew up Maggie, how wonderful to have you join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It's nice to be meeting you this way. You're a professor emerita of sociology. Could you explain a little bit about that path? Because I got confused. I was looking at all your credentials, which are significant and extensive, but I was having trouble locating you in place and time. 
Emerita is a title that is given to faculty who have had significant achievements at the time they retire, and I have retired from the university after many years of teaching and scholarship and service there. But which university? Oh, I'm sorry, University of Delaware. Okay, and which city is the University of Delaware? Is I'm in Wisconsin. What do we know about Delaware? <laughs> Delaware is one of the smallest states in the Union, but also the first. Um, The University of Delaware is located in Newark, Delaware, in the northern part of the state. Delaware at that edge of our state is only 14 miles across. Most people know it through passing down I-95 between Philadelphia and Baltimore or New York and Washington. So we are right in the heart of what would be called the East Coast what did they used to call it? Metropolitan area. But I understand you actually reside in Maryland. I do reside in Maryland, and I have resided here for many years because faculty at the University of Delaware, given the size of the northern part of the state, live in many different places. It's easy to live in a different state and be just a few minutes from campus. And I also understand that at least at one period in your life, you had special connection with Stanford U and their Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity Center is of particular interest in terms of race that we'll be talking about today. So what was your connection with Stanford? I went to Stanford as a visiting professor for one year in 1999-2000, and following that appointment, I was for many years the chair of the National Advisory Board for the Center for Comparative Studies of Race and Ethnicity. This is a center that I think is doing some very innovative scholarly work and policy work so that we can better understand the social and historical and cultural dynamics of race and ethnicity in American society. And we're going to dive into that pretty well today on Spirit in Action as we talk about your most recent book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. But you've also had other books that are really significant, perhaps the two biggest hits of Margaret L. Anderson's career have been Race, Class, and Gender, which is in its 10th edition, and Thinking About Women, 11th edition. And how far back, I mean, if to get to 11th and 10th editions, how many years does that mean in repeating and publicizing and revising and teaching people with those books? Well, thinking about women, uh, the subtitle of which is Sociological Perspectives on Sex and Gender, was first published in 1982. It was my first book. I wrote it at the time because there were precious few books about women that we could use in teaching our classes. That book has subsequently been revised, as you said, 10 different times, so it recently was published in its 11th edition. And changes in that book reflect not just changes in the scholarship that have emerged over those years, but also changes in women's and men's lives and society over time. My other book, Race, Class, and Gender, that you mentioned, is actually co-edited with Patricia Hill Collins. It is an anthology of essays by other people with introductions to frame them written by us. It's been widely used in college and university classrooms around the country. 
Before we got on the air, Maggie, I was talking a little bit about your history, and I was intrigued and excited to hear that you actually started out college in math and computer science, which is, of course, what I started off with uh, in college amongst, I had speech communications at the same time. But So why are you not a math professor emerita now instead of a sociology professor? That's a really interesting question. I was a math honors student in high school. I went to college on a math scholarship. Luckily, I had a full ride because at the time, my mother could not have afforded to send me to the university I attended my first year. I was in an honors three-quarter calculus class and had an extremely sexist professor. And when I went to him for help with a problem in my honors calculus class, he told me that girls just could not do math. Didn't help me at all. Yeah, I laugh now and have actually received a formal public apology from the president of that particular university. But needless to say, I was a first-generation college student dependent upon that scholarship for my education. So I left that university, went to a public university in that city, faked my way into a secretarial job because I didn't really know how to type, but could do hunt and peck pretty well at the time. And so I then worked full-time and went to classes in the evening and in the morning and on my lunch break. And at one point went into a required introduction to sociology class, and it literally, to use the phrase of the time, blew my mind. The faculty member was talking a lot about racial inequality. He was bringing guest speakers into the classroom, including the Black Panther Party, someone from the then-budding feminist movement. And I sat there thinking, oh my gosh, I really agree with what a lot of what these people are saying. There's such inequality in the world. And I then figured out, since I was working full-time as a secretary, and the professor said to me, you're very good at this, you should go to graduate school. Well, I figured out I could go to graduate school and someone would pay my way and I'd be earning more than I was as a secretary at the time. And so that's what I did. I was so excited by sociology and also learned that I could make a living if I became trained in the discipline and, you know, used the skills I had to be a sociologist. That's what I did. I haven't regretted it ever. And that led to your master's and your Ph.D. at Amherst in Massachusetts and to your subsequent work as a professor of sociology at University of Delaware. And so that's something about your academic work. I already heard one thing that I think would be very significant is you said your mother couldn't afford to send you. So one of the things that you mentioned in Getting Smart About Race and American Conversation, one of the things that you say is if you ask people to say, who are you, to identify themselves, white people very seldom identify that they're white, whereas people of minorities who have to live out that identity because they they run into the dominant culture so often, that white people will not mention that they're white but someone who's black or who's Jewish or something, they'll frequently identify that. So if I ask Margaret L. Anderson, who are you? What are the top 10 identifiers you'd put on there? There are many questions in that question. So let me try to break that down. If you ask me, who am I? 
because I have spent my career now thinking about race and its implications for all of us, I no longer take being white for granted. So I would probably include in my top ten that I am a white woman, middle class, well-educated, and that's four. I don't know if I want to go through the whole list of ten. (laughs) (laughs) I am now a feminist. I certainly was not born that way, but I've been deeply influenced in my current social and political values by movements of the 1960s and 1970s. And I'm not sure, I think I've named five, perhaps, so I don't know how far down that list you want to go. But you raise another really important point that I talk about in my book, and that is that most white people don't identify in what's called the 20 statements test as being white because it's taken to be the norm in our society, and everybody else is defined as somehow other. But when you really start to get smarter about race and look at how thoroughly race structures our everyday environment, regardless of our own individual identities, then I think race becomes more salient, not because it should be and not because we should be categorizing people that way, but because we have to face the reality of continuing racial inequality in our society. One of your identifiers that you didn't toss in that I just want to make sure everyone knows is you're identified with water. I don't know, your water being, it seems important to not let that one slip by. Well, I am identified with water in that I am lucky enough to live on the Chesapeake Bay. I am looking at part of it as we speak. I'm a swimmer. Here, that's, I guess that's item number six. I'm also a sailor. And my connection to water... I think keeps me grounded in a world that can be pretty overwhelming. As a sociologist, you know, I look at some pretty depressing facts on an everyday basis. That could really grind you down. My students often tell me, you're making me feel so pessimistic because I think when we face the endurance of the many inequalities, both race, gender, class, sexuality, you know, all the different forms of human oppression that we see, it can be very disabling. So I think for me, having a kind of day-to-day connection to seeing water, sometimes being in or on it, creates a sort of optimism that makes me remember that change can happen. We certainly have seen a lot of progress in the nation's race relations over my lifetime and in an even longer range view, many, many changes for the better. But I don't want that to obscure the fact that we still have work to do. Well, let's talk about it. There's one of the things that you bring up early in the book, Getting Smart About Race, is that race, as many people conceive of it, is not real, although racism is very real. Now, that statement is too broad brush to convey enough information. Could you explain what a valid usage of the word race is about as opposed to one that is not backed up by the facts? One of the major themes in my book that also is a major theme in all of my teaching is this idea that race is a social construction. Human beings invented that concept to allegedly justify 
the exploitation of other human beings. And so the notion of race dates way back in Western history to the original conquest of African peoples for purposes of making them slaves for the benefit of others. It unfortunately then takes on a life of its own. Um, And as I say in the book, race is a social construction, and it is constructed because of the idea of racism, that racism makes race, not the other way around. Now, that does create for us now a conundrum, because many people would say, well, I don't want to recognize race. People are just people. We should all just be humanists. The problem with that way of thinking is it tends to overlook the continuing significance of race in structuring our relationships as well as our social institutions. And so it's, I will admit, it's a tricky concept because I don't want us to categorize people by race, but yet we do. And as a sociologist, I need to have evidence of that in such things as census data, educational data, and other forms of information where race is noted and accounted for. Another fact that many people seem to ignore, and you know, it's comfortable at the point of view of someone living in 2020, but back in the 1800s, for instance, when the Irish were first coming to the country and the Italians were first coming to the country, neither one of them was considered to be white. That only gradually evolved to be included in this protected class, shall we say, of white. Could you talk a little bit about the evolving nature of race, uh, what we meant by it? I mean, it's not Right now, we think of it mainly, I think, as black and white, but of course, Mexican-Americans and Asian peoples of different countries all are seen as having different races from our point of view. But it used to be the Irish were not considered white. Well, you're right in that the Irish were considered to be the black Irish. There's a debate among historians about exactly what that meant, because the Irish were never defined as a race per se in the same way that African Americans were defined as a race for purposes of slavery. No question, the Irish, the Italians, many of the early European immigrant groups, including Jewish people, have been brutally treated and discriminated against and treated with overt hatred and prejudice over our nation's history. But at the very same time that many of those groups were coming to the U.S., You know, let's not forget, African Americans were in chains. Mexican Americans were having their land annexed in the Southwest and seized by Anglos. So the histories are very different, and I don't want to minimize the hostility and prejudice that white ethnic groups have faced or that many people currently do face. But it's not the same thing as developing an economic system that is completely dependent upon the unpaid labors of others. The other thing about white European immigrants is they were entering a nation during a time of an expanding labor market. And so many of them, through their own ethnic ties, were able to get a foothold into particular expanding industries that then enabled their success. We can't really say that that's happening, say, for contemporary immigrants today. Although it's important to note that that was one of the ways, this is something I took from reading the book. I was thinking critically about it. One of the important questions is how has race and racial oppression 
been overcome in the past, what actually has helped us make progress. And so I, when I thought about the Irish, I said, oh, so what did they do? And there's many other cases, including with blacks and whites, uh, the whole study of what happened around New Orleans, which was a, a different case because they were French settled was very interesting to me as well. I, you didn't talk about that in the book, but it's one of the things I've been exposed to. One of the very interesting little tidbits that you mentioned in Getting Smart About Race was that some of the very first colonies brought here included indentured servants, both white and black. And I had never seen that before. So the very first blacks, I think, imported to the North American continent were not imported as slaves, that slavery was a conception and approach to economic domination that evolved after that first indentured servitude. You know, it's really interesting because we have a lot of stereotypes, or at least I certainly did going through my own schooling. I had stereotypes about what slavery was, and I'm not sure what young people would say today, but my stereotype of it was that it was southern, that it was on cotton plantations, that it involved vast numbers of people. Well, that's true late in the history of slavery, but one of the most astonishing things that I've learned is that my own region of the country is, of course, where slavery originated. Maryland, the state of Maryland, was the first U.S. state to pass a law defining people as slaves, and that was in 1641. The vast majority of slave ownership took place around the Chesapeake Bay, Tidewater, Virginia, mainly because of the production of wheat and tobacco, but also on the eastern shore of Maryland, where I live. And, you know, it's interesting, as I drive around, I can still see physical evidence of that. Until, this is the fact that just astonished me when I first learned it, until 1820, which is quite late in our nation's history of slavery. Remember the first law of slavery, 1641. So you're talking almost 200 years of slavery later. By then, two-thirds of the U.S. slave population resided around the Chesapeake Bay. And it was in a mere 30-year period when, by 1850, two-thirds of the slave population resided in the deeper south. That was simply because of the invention of the cotton gin, which enabled, you know, much more mass production of cotton. So when you look now at slave narratives from the early 19th century, their deepest fear was being sold south. And you'll, you'll see this repeated if you look even at contemporary films. Well, that's because it's situated in a very particular history of the growth of the cotton industry. Um, and I say all that, that was a little long-winded, but I say it because I think the more we learn about the actual history of racism in this country, the more revealing and stunning it actually is. You know, I identify as white, don't know of a direct African lineage. I did live in Africa for two years, and I visited a number of times since. So I actually probably have a significantly more African connection than, you know, 95% of Americans. That is to say, I've spent more time there directly. But because I've lived there, I can come back to the U.S. and see racism much more obviously. And yet there are a number of people who will deny that racism is going on. So that having been said, 
And so I, it's very clear that I see racism. I identify it, even though I don't end up seeing it, obviously, because I'm white and no one points it at me, right? And, and there's very few black people who live here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is where I live. There are a number of Hmong people from Southeast Asia, and I think I see it with them happening pretty frequently. Anyway, as we were already talking, whites don't generally identify themselves as by race because it goes without saying, shall we say. They don't see the nose on the end of their face. Could you explain a little bit more about the pernicious effects of not seeing your own race and the privilege that comes with it? I'm not sure I would put that quite the same way. Um, so what you asked was, could I say something about the pernicious effects of not seeing your own race? It's not so much to me about not seeing one's own racial identity as it is about denying that race still matters in society, whatever your own racial identity. You know, I like to say, suppose, you know, a lot of white people will say, well, I don't see race. People are just people. I, I don't see you, as they say to some, say, African-American person. I don't see you as black. I just see you as a person. But to the person to whom that is said, who may have a very positive African-American black identity, that's like saying, I don't really see you for who you are. So I think we have to sort of sort out here these questions about race as an identity differing from race as something that structures our society. Because I think those are two clearly related things, but they're not the same. So of course I don't want people to judge people based on any particular characteristic, whether it be race or gender or sexual orientation or religion. On the other hand, I do want people to see how those social factors create systems of advantage and disadvantage in every social setting that we can think of. I think one of the things that gets difficult is we say we should never judge someone based on their characteristic. And yet we all know that it makes sense if you want someone to lift you out of a pit, you want someone who's strong or who has long arms or you know, whatever. There, there are certainly all kinds of characteristics which are really important in terms of the work and the, the efforts that we put forward that are valuable. So therefore, laws have typically said we're not supposed to discriminate based on race or ethnic or sex, gender, and so on. We say which things should not be discriminated on the basis of. As you explained so clearly in the book, and again, folks, we're speaking with Margaret L. Anderson, author of Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation, is that people often start associating characteristics, stereotypes, prejudices with, you know, so poor people are lazy, for instance. Well, we don't want someone working for us who is lazy, but unfortunately that gets translated through racism and through the racial lens as not hiring someone who's black and so on. So the, the threads get very complex between judgments about attributes and judgments about groups of people. Well, I think it has to do with the problem of generalization. And you've used the example of no one wants to work with someone who's lazy. I certainly don't. I had very little tolerance for students who wouldn't do the work in my classes. But if some lazy student doesn't do his or her work, 
I would not generalize that to their race, nor to their gender, perhaps. And I think that's the difference. When people accuse people, oh, they just don't work hard enough, that's why they're poor, they often make that judgment without having any relationship whatsoever to anyone who's been poor, certainly anyone who's been poor, African-American or Latino. And so because of racism in society, we're all too quick to generalize attributes like being lazy, not working hard enough, to entire classes and races of people uh, without knowledge to the contrary. One of the problems that I know that we run into is generalizations are important in terms of efficiently carrying out our life, right? A vehicle that runs on gasoline will transport me more quickly than a vehicle that runs on horses or something. You know, there's generalizations like that. And even though, by the way, a horse might be quicker depending on the terrain you're covering. So generalizations always have their limitations. And the mixing of the stereotypes, which actually serves a a power economic elite, is one of the big problems. So my question is, where does racism come from? Is it from the ground up or is it from the top down or what percentages come from which direction? You know, I borrow a phrase in my book from the wonderful educator Beverly Tatum who says, racism, it's like smog in the air because it's everywhere. When you ask where does it come from, we see it in representation in everyday life. There's a wonderful example in the book of just walking through the grocery store. Who would imagine that you walk into the grocery store and you're confronted with racist images? Well, I would challenge your listeners to try that because what you'll find is there are racialized images on many of the products that you find in ordinary grocery store aisles. We certainly have a lot of research detail or just look with your own eyes at racist images that are in popular culture. And that's just one source where racial representations permeate our society. But we also live in an intensely racially segregated society, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, even in our churches. Churches are among some of the most segregated institutions of America. And, you know, I'm a product of public schools, but I have to say, I also went to segregated schools. As a young student, I grew up for a while in the state of California. My school, as I remember it, was largely white. I moved as a young girl to Georgia in 1958, and I went to formally racially segregated schools because I was living in the heart of Jim Crow segregation. I then moved to Boston as a young teenager and noticed that though Jim Crow segregation wasn't there, my schooling was just as white as it had been in rural Georgia. So I think the segregation that characterizes our social institutions really disables us from being able to have some of the cross-race relationships and understandings and friendships that we pretty desperately need to have if we're going to ever overcome this problem. So certainly I grew up with racism. As a matter of fact, there was one period where I lived for five months in Texas. I actually had black students in my third grade class there as well. Then I come back up to Wisconsin and I I don't see, I, I didn't have any black students in my schools until junior high. But I was down in Texas in the 1960, 62, I guess I was there, come back north. And I've seen some changes happening, but To what degree are the attitudes about race and discrimination, to what degree are they changing and are there particular signs of hope? 
Attitudes about race have changed significantly over time. Right now, attitudinal surveys are showing that people are tending to become a little bit more aware of race. Some of the signs of hope come from our nation's younger people because data show that younger people are more likely to have biracial and multiracial friends or to be biracial or multiracial themselves. So that's one sign of hope that maybe younger people are going to engage more in interracial relationships. On the other hand, we're not sure how that will change over time. And on the negative side of that, one of the things we know is that our nation's public schools are now just as racially segregated as they were in 1980. That's a major national crisis, I would say. And if I were going to do anything to try to address this problem, I would try to tackle the problem of segregation of the schools. Because that's where young people form their friendships and form their attitudes and where they get an education or not. The other thing that's being found in surveys of young people is though they're more likely to have friends from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, they are also more likely to think that race doesn't matter anymore. And in one particularly disturbing trend, I'm starting to see now reports of the growth of white nationalism even on our nation's college campuses. That's very distressing because education needs to be a place where people are opening their minds, opening thinking, exploring new ideas, not adhering to some of these old racist ideologies of the past. And we're going to explore more of this with Margaret L. Anderson, author of a new book, Getting Smart About Race in American Conversation, here on Spirit in Action. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, with 14 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. We have both Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, and you'll find other shows that are hosted on our site, including Citizens Climate Radio and Bible Bash and a couple other gems that you will want to check out on nordenspiritradio.org. Post a comment on the programs when you visit. So when you're listening to me talking to Maggie, Margaret Anderson, that is, remember to post a comment on how you thought this interview went and how helpful it was. And we need your feedback. Education is a two-way loop as far as I'm concerned. So we need your feedback. There's also a donate button on our site. That's how this full-time work is supported. Please support us, but even more so support your local community radio station, other local media are so important to have voices in the community speaking up as opposed to the overly digested and limited national dialogue that we have, which serves different purposes than the important things in a community. So please support your local community radio station. And then maybe you want to go out and pick up a copy of the book, Getting Smart About Race by Margaret L. Anderson. That's what we're discussing here today for Spirit in Action. And I want to launch into a whole bunch of other topics that we could discuss from the book. The book is a relatively short book, that is to say 140 pages to talk about. So really, uh, and Maggie, I have to say, it's really wonderfully, effectively, and concisely done, talking about a really naughty topic. Thank you for that. You're welcome. The knots that are involved in talking about race are so confusing to so many people. 
One of them, for instance, and uh, my first wife used to refer to the fact that she didn't think she was racist, that she, but she did think she was classist. There is some overlap of those attitudes. Could you talk a little bit about the uh, problems and the maybe the potentials associated in looking at class versus race and how these things get confused and end up, I'm too often, I'm afraid, supporting racism? I'm happy to do that. The way that I look at this is, first of all, I hear too many people say to me, and these are well-educated people who mean well, oh, I don't think it's about race anymore. It's all about class. Well, yes and no. Yes, class really matters. We have high rates of poverty, especially among people of color in this country, and we need to do something about that. But the way that I see this is that race and class are deeply intertwined in our society. And to talk about one to the exclusion of the other misses the complexity of the social and economic forces that create such things as high rates of poverty, especially for African-American, Hispanic, and Native children. This is a crisis for our country. We still have more than a approximately one quarter of African-American, Native, and Latino children living in poverty. If that were true for white children, we would declare another war on poverty, as President Johnson did in the 1960s. We need to take this seriously and not let ourselves fall prey to very glib assumptions that somehow the economy is thriving when a quarter of our kids of color are living in poverty. This is a national embarrassment. Absolutely true. Another one of the difficult things for people to sort out is the difference between personal racism, personal prejudice, the way that we live it out face-to-face by meeting another person, and the racism that's built into our structure, what you call structural racism, such that even if I'm not being prejudiced to a person's face, that racism is still having a major impact. Could you talk about that distinction a bit? Yeah, sociologists make the distinction between prejudice or what you might call individual-level racism. This is an attitude, right? And we distinguish that from racism as a systemic part of society. The best way I know to really illustrate that is I'm going to take my own residential neighborhood. I live in a nice community. As far as I know, none of my neighbors hold prejudiced or racist ideas. If they do, they're a numerical minority, and they don't particularly express it. On the other hand, my neighborhood, as far as I can tell, is about 99.9% white. So that's not because of the attitudes of the people who live here. And if I were to unpack that in terms of institutional racism, I would say, first of all, I know that in my neighborhood years ago, racial covenants were written into every deed that legally prohibited black people from moving here. Now, those covenants are gone, just as some of the other racist practices of the past are gone. And yet we know from research that such things as redlining, lending practices, behaviors of real estate agents when they are showing people properties continue to reproduce the fact that my neighborhood remains white, even though I know full well there are people of color in the area who can't afford to live here. The other thing, of course, that you have to work into that, and I don't want to go into a long lecture about this, but there are significant differences in black and white wealth holdings 
as well as black and Hispanic wealth holdings. To my knowledge, no one's measuring Native American wealth holdings. It doesn't show up in the research the same way. Uh, Right now, white people, on average, have 10 times the amount of wealth as black people. And that's even if they are not so-called wealthy people. It really means even just the equity built into a person's home. That for every dollar that a white American might have in assets, African Americans hold 10 cents. This, too, is a national tragedy. And I'd mentioned, folks, that if you want to hear a lot more detail about that, you should listen to my interview with Diedrich Asante Mohammed about income versus wealth disparities, the, the racial wealth gap. It's, it's so pervasive. It's so influential in terms of the structural racism. And it, it means that we're not starting with a level playing field. If you don't have that, then expecting people to come out in the same place or to be able to achieve the same amounts is really denying the the facts in front of our face. And I was wondering, Maggie, if you could talk a little bit. You don't really address this, I think, in the book, Getting Smart About Race, but the difference between equality and equity and the rising view that we have about that. Theoretically, the U.S. is all about equality. We should all be equal regardless of race, sex, and many other factors. But equity says we have to address something different. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think it's grown a lot in the the view of what we have to do to address sociological problems in our country. Yeah, the distinction in equality and equity is a subtle one, and I use the term equality just because I do. (laughs) And I don't mean in saying that that I want everybody to be somehow socially equal. That's, That's silly. And so I think some people have started using the term equity to emphasize the concept of fairness and justice. It's not that everybody's going to come out to be the same, which is implied by the word equality, but we want people to face equitable treatment in that they are not singled out. And one of the factors, and and I think that people on the conservative side of the argument use this to great effect, if I am in fact lazy or not as smart or not as strong or fast or not as hard a worker or whatever, it seems fair in that case that I get not as great a reward for my lack of effort, ability, etc., right? On the conservative end, they make this argument that that's why poor people are poor. And that's where I think a sociologist like yourself, Maggie, can come in and say, uh, no, that you've made a big leap there. Could you talk about that leap that people make? Well, I think some people can get away with being lazy better than other people. If you have the resources, whether they be wealth, family background, networks, to be able to be lazy and still make it in society, that tells you that laziness per se doesn't predict success one way or the other. And, you know, there there's a lot of documentation around the very hard work that poor people do and yet face obstacles to their own success. And I think it's that hard work that we overlook, we meaning those of us in the dominant group, when we make judgments about their moral failure somehow. Well, morality does come into it, too. 
And unfortunately, morality tends to be defined conveniently for those whose self-interest goes in another direction. I can't help but comment over the last three years, it looks to me like actually a decline in morality on the public stage that that's become less and less important because I'm so attached to peace and social justice. I can't help but notice that change. Is there a sociological explanation of why it should happen at this place in this time or or what we should be doing to counter it? I think there's a perception on the part of some, and I want to emphasize some, white people who are themselves struggling to make their way in society. And they perceive, perhaps wrongly, in fact wrongly, other people are getting something for nothing. And those, quote, other people typically are then stereotyped as African-American or Latino. And, you know, what I think about whenever I hear such arguments is lots of people make mistakes, bad judgments in their life. I've certainly made many of my own. Yet, in my case, or in the case of white people, if we make bad decisions in the way we live our lives, it doesn't get generalized to all people of our race. So I don't want to ignore the fact that, yeah, there probably are some people in poor Latino communities who might be misusing some food stamps. But I'm telling you, if you try to live and feed your family on food stamps, you're going to have a very meager life. But I don't want to overlook that, yes, there may be some bad behavior in some of these places, but it gets generalized to everyone in a way that bad choices, bad decisions for other people do not get generalized. And we've been hearing a lot of that kind of usage from the highest offices in the country. I'm talking about Congress and the president, and we've been hearing so much judgment of certain people and ignoring those same behaviors when they're happening by privileged people. You know, if if a person is rich, he must be, a, by definition, a good person. Is that a new phenomenon, or does that go way back in history? I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think that it is highly visible right now. You know, I don't, I don't want to get into kind of a deeply political discussion here on the air, but, um, yeah, so I'm sort of dodging your question a little bit. But I find it outrageous, and what I wish would happen is that someone could emerge who would help us heal this difference that we're living through in our society right now. There's much more I'd like to talk to you about, Maggie, from your book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation by Margaret L. Anderson. You can find a little bit more about her if you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and follow a link or two that I'll have to her and her other books, including Race, Class, and Gender, and Thinking About Women. It's such a quick read. Folks, if you pick up the book, you're going to have light bulbs going on. You're going to see things more clearly, and I think that there's a promise of a better future as we go forward. The last thing I'd ask you, Maggie, is that your last chapter in the book, before the appendices, You're talking about the way forward, and you've already said that there's some hope in some places. If there is one thing you could put in place in this country to help move us forward in terms of being smart about race, what would it be? Well, first, I just want to say, because you mentioned appendices, and that's a big fancy academic word, so let me just say a word to your listeners about what those are, because they're meant to be useful to the average person. One is an appendix that has further resources of film, video, and reading that people might want to do 
based on what they've learned in my book. But the other, I think even more important, is a set of questions as well as some links to some guidelines on how you can hold important conversations such as the one we've been having in various community organizations, maybe at your workplace or in your school or even around the dinner table. And so I've deliberately put those in the book to further this conversation. So then you asked me if I could do one thing. I am a product of the public schools. I went to public schools throughout my education, including where I got my Ph.D., the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And so I'm proud of that public schooling. And though I think there were flaws in my education because of not learning enough about race at certain points in time, I think investment in our public schools is a critical national need. We must address the racial segregation and the class segregation that has happened in our schools and that is persistent. Largely, I fear because of our nation having declared school segregation unconstitutional in Brown versus the Board of Education. And yet here we are. Schools are just as segregated as they were in 1980. We need to focus on our nation's young people to make sure that they are given good opportunities for success. And I think starting in the schools is a place to do that. Now, because I'm a sociologist, I never see single answers to complex questions like the one you asked me. So I also think there's a role for our nation's churches and synagogues and temples and other places to start carrying on this conversation. Were I to be elected president in this very fraught political election, I would declare a national emergency around race and class inequality and start taking steps to address it. So I think we've just heard, folks, that we have a new candidate for president. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Maggie, for writing so cogently, so clearly in Getting Smart About Race for your lifelong academic work on trying to help provide the tools to heal and make this a better world. It's really great work that you're doing, and I thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. I enjoyed our conversation. My and our appreciation goes out to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Remember to get a copy of Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation by Margaret L. Anderson. And we're going to play you one more song before we sign off, obviously on today's theme. This is from the video, jointly produced by Cool G Rap, DJ Polo, Big Daddy Kane, and Biz Markey. Together, their message is erase racism. Enjoy and learn, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Erase racism. Yo, V, bring the beat in. Yeah, that's all right. Oh, man. Yo, G. Yo, Cool G. Yo, I'm doing this record. We got Big Daddy Kane over there. We all going to do just one part because, you know, we came a long way, you know, from back in the Martin Luther King days, Malcolm X, and hard to tell. Now, now that we see Mel- Nelson Mandela's free, we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about this racism. Stop that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're gonna stop that. So, G, why don't you just do your rhyming right. part, and then I'll come on after you. All right, check it out. Go, Here we ahead. go. 
Yo, I'm trying hard to explore. I'm not sure what all the race you walk for is making me more sore. I walk through a colorblind corridor, seeking for peace in the people I'm meeting. Black, white, and Puerto Rican men are greeting each other just like brothers. There's plenty and many of others you can't discover. Kids, fathers, and mothers, a melting pot. No one felt the guy. Prejudice, listen, I can never assist someone. This, this, a landscape with a dark and a light handshake. Having fun without one being a fake snake. So let's form a rainbow over the mountain. And let's drink from the same water fountain. Let's make our Earth Day story of people that walk through the same territories. Color or creed is no need for a man to bleed. I believe we all breathe the same seed. Unless it's diluted for something that intruded. Then I see your family tree was uprooted. So don't be foolish if you're Jewish or Hindu. The racial menu is the evil that men do. I was raised in a nation of Asian. Hate shouldn't separate Jamaican from Haitian. So if you're caving in your ears, I hope you hear me in. Siberians, no better than Nigerian. I bring a rattle to a battle that you send me in. I'm no villain, so why would I be killing Indians? My nationality's reality. And yo, a prejudiced man is of a devil mentality. These are words of a wise man. Wisdom. Take a taste and erase the racism. My ink is black. The page is white. Together we learn how to read and write. People are black. Got people that's white. Let's stop racism and let's unite. Yo, yo, Kane, why don't you do your part and then let me do mine and we get out of here. Go ahead, go ahead. In the days of slavery, some got to run away and many got done away. Inferiority is what some men say, but that played out with Kuta Kente. Then again in the streets of New York, I think of Yusef Hawkins and I see it still stalking. And when I think of areas like Benson Hearst, <laughs> notice how I mention Hearst. We got to better this world of prejudice. People make peace and learn to live equal. Cause I don't look at myself as a coon or a moolie that would have to say massa. You better believe that I'm an Asiatic descendant and I know what's been amended and intended. So let's fulfill and get real and try to build a united nation. Eliminate segregation. I know there's different strokes for different folks, but I've also acknowledged what hatred provokes. So don't hate me or try to underrate me. Cause I collect ends, drive a Benz and live greatly. And we can all live together in harmony Without thinking what color is harming me If I'm a slave, I'm a slave to the rhythm To E-R-A-S-E, -E, the racism The ink is black, the page is white Together we learn how to read and write Some people are black, there's people that's white Let's stop racism and let you unite. Throw the black and white, the red and the yellow. To all the nationalities, I like to say hello. And I hope they stop racism and it's coming from our hearts. Me, Coogee Rap, Polo, Big Daddy Kane, Cool V, and of course the Diabolical and Bismarcky. I hope you stop racism. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every